It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is Time Enough Podcast. Welcome to Time Enough Podcast. It's where we get into episodes of the Twilight Zone and beyond. This is Matt here, and joining me today is, you know what? I should have like asked you a bit more about how to do an intro, because my intro is Dorian's an old friend. Mark had her email. It turned out to be the email I probably had in the first place, and uh, <laughs> you talk movies, and we used to talk movies, lots of screwball comedies, and black and white we're still black and white but uh if, if you want to elaborate on on what what you're up to in uh the film world and why you wanted the obsolete man you you can you can rattle that off <laughs> oh okay okay so yes my name is dorian um i've known matt for some time um although it's been a long, long time eight thousand years i think he said and that's probably true um so i'm a media archivist a film historian and a writer uh, I currently work for an online magazine called Video Librarian. Um, they do reviews of films for collection development in academic specialty and public libraries. And I also work for a film distributor. So there's a lot of films still sprinkled throughout my life. Um, and I was excited about The Obsolete Man because I thought it was going to be about, before I saw it, I thought it was going to be about um, obsolete media. I thought that that's what the crux of the the story would be about, but actually that's not true. It's about the man being obsolete for believing in books still. So a little bit darker than I expected, but I was really excited to see this one. So well the books, the books are the the obsolete media in this case. That's where that's where where you're getting off okay here because you're like it's an online magazine. If it's a, <laughs> if it's a published magazine, you would you would be right in the star chamber uh to be declared obsolete by this point yeah <laughs> well and i love how and i'm jumping ahead a little bit it, they call them the narcotics you call literature so <laughs> that's intense so i guess they couldn't have but imagined I, a kindle at this point in time so <laughs> no and they also refer to the librarian as just books which isn't really what our librarians any, are anymore that's like a 60s version of just books as opposed to now where you know film and media is a part of what the librarian's job is so as a librarian slash archivist um yeah i was intrigued to, to see this one and it was much sadder than i expected it to be but uh but also great yeah this one um I, I it quickly went up to my list of my favorite episodes. Um, I got the it's one of the first ones that I watched when I got the Blu-ray set last year. I think I was like, oh, it'll be a while till I get to the end of season two. Although I'm here now, it's been a while. But uh, yeah, <laughs> so I watched a few, and this one really stuck with me. And I was like, oh, this must be like everybody's favorite. And and actually, I found like doing a few chats online and things that this one has some points of contention for some people, which we'll we'll get into. Uh, first, though, I want to do just a, a smattering of trivia on the episode. The original air date was June 2nd, 1961, and the script is by Rod Serling. Elliot Silverstein directed this along with four other episodes of The Twilight Zone. He also helmed the Academy Award-winning feature film comedy Western Cat Baloo, 
which I saw far too many times as an 80s child because the VHS was on my aunt's VHS rack. And, it, and when, you know, I'm at six years old, it's like, oh, I went to a movie with Cat in it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Even though it doesn't really have anything to do with that. Um, Burgess Meredith is Romney Wordsworth, and he's basically Twilight Zone royalty. This is uh, beyond his four zone appearances. He served as a narrator in the reboot movie, and is fully qualified to deathmatch Danny DeVito for the role of Batman's Penguin. Yes, I figured that and Rocky are probably the things that are most known these days when people think of Burgess Meredith, right? Oh, yeah, you give him a robot. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> Rocky Four is the only true Rocky movie. I, I heard recently, uh, I don't know if this was a joke or not, if this was a bit, but uh, Sylvester Stallone being like, he wanted to recut Rocky Four without the robot when... That's not that's not correct. Don't do that. Yeah. Mm-mm. Okay. Mm-mm. Two, two votes against that. Right. Mm-hmm. Agreed. But in, well, the other thing I think about when I think about Rocky is how raspy Burgess Meredith's voice is. But he didn't get raspier with age. He really was raspy in the beginning. So it's almost the same voice that you're hearing in the '60s as you hear a little bit later. You know, he still got that distinctive sound. It's weird though. I, I did watch the Twilight Zone movie about a year and a half ago, and I felt like he was kind of like had a more singing quality than I was used to when he was doing the voice work. Like maybe he was more self-conscious about his voice and tried to smooth it out for that mm-hmm. movie. Or maybe I'm just remembering it wrong. I don't know. <laughs> well, another thing about this role, since he had played someone who loved books earlier in the show, right? So there was the earlier episode um, and now he is a librarian by profession. So it's sort of like an, I mean, you can't compare the two different characters, but that's kind of interesting that he starts as one and they're like, hey, let's bring him back and make him a librarian. Like, it seems like they're connected behind the scenes a little bit. And the next one's a printer. So, I mean, uh, I guess it's an evil printer, judging by the title. I think he's but... the devil in that. So, you know, oh, that's no, cool. close. Okay. Natural progression. It. Yeah. <laughs> we already saw Fritz Weaver and third from the sun, and he plays the chancellor here. Weaver would get weird for genre TV and Serling's Night Gallery and the non-Serling X-Files. In film, he showed up in Failsafe, Marathon Man, and the Thomas Crown Affair. And then I just typed G. I think I might have fallen asleep on my keyboard at that point. So (laughs) that means trivia over. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Doreen, I am throwing the prologue uh, for you. Some people do the Rod Serling. I've had people try and do like a southern madman or you could just read it in a normal voice all of those are uh all all of those options are available to you i'm gonna go as normal and as eloquent as i can so start anytime yep all right you walk into this room at your own risk because it leads to the future not a future that will be but one that might be this is not a new world it is simply an extension of what began in the old one It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. This is Mr. Romney Wordsworth in his last 48 hours on earth. He's a citizen of the state, but will soon have to be eliminated because he's built out of the flesh and because he has a mind, Mr. Romney Wordsworth, who will draw his last breaths in the Twilight Zone. All right, thanks. So I guess one of the things that sticks in my mind for this episode straight up is I 
feel like this is one of the best minimalist sets ever. Um, in my notes, I, I compared it basically like it's this or Doctor Strange Loves War Room, which honestly is a, even an even better minimalist set. But this is on a TV budget, so sure. Yeah, and it's it's disproportionate. Like it makes you know the whole point is that the state is this overwhelming power, and everyone is small in comparison. So just from the opening shot of the Chancellor sitting in whatever that is, sort of like a judge's throne almost, to the the jury, you know, quote-unquote jury, standing alongside, like, you know, like a, in a military formation. Like, it just, it's about making him, and the doors, the doors are giant. Like, I don't even know how they got, like, the soundstage must have been quite large to have doors open like that, and it's, it makes a great first impression. I think there actually was some notable um, work for those doors. Uh, I, I should have had the sense to go look at the Twilight Zone companion when I was doing my trivia and I, I didn't. Oops, I let Wiki do it for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I do remember that actually being an issue for, for building this set. Um, I mean, you still got to spend some money on, on even a minimal, minimalist set. They're not just... Some Twilight Zones have just used the soundstage as the set. Mm-hmm. So The back lot, yes. Well, I mean, the soundstage is even lazier. I mean, I shouldn't say lazy. It's like uh, the, the very first episode, where is everybody? When when he comes out of his little MK Orchard chamber, it's just, this is the soundstage. But it's like, well, okay, that seems like a military warehouse too. So it's it's fine. And that episode also extensively using backlots, of course. So, <laughs> but this one- Well, yeah. and the set that has the most going on is Romney's room with all of the books and the bookcases and that contrast between the stark area where he's judged and sent to death at versus his home that he's made this sort of comforting thing and he's surrounded with all the things that he loves including that bible that he stashes away for 20 years because it's illegal because what was it the state has proven there is no god so um so that that's a that's the comfy set <laughs> that is the biggest point of contention i found um people don't like in this episode that his striking back against the state is basically religious based um which in a 19 in, you know 1960 61 we've hit a few times where maybe religion is taken in a slightly different way than it would be now you know we're just coming out of the 50s where you you, you go to church and sit next to ned flanders or whatever right so <laughs> <laughs> um but that wasn't the crux of their argument for sentencing him. It was the thing about the field investigators in your sector have classified you as obsolete because you have no function, you're anachronistic, and you're a ghost from another time, which is a really great compliment, but obviously not in this context. <laughs> and then yeah. he calls him an ugly crawling bug and delusional. So I thought the religion was sort of an afterthought. Like they didn't really reveal that part about the Bible until like much later in. So that's interesting that that's something that people don't like about it because I didn't think that was the forefront of the reason he was being liquidated I thought that was just that was yet another book that he held precious yeah yeah so they basically gave him the sentence of being a hipster (laughs) (laughs) an obsolete hipster it's too bad he didn't have like the little mustache tattoo on his finger that would be a nice touch they can do that (laughs) if they they remake it (laughs) 
<laughs> he had that really random Pegasus statue when the later when the chancellor comes to visit him at his home or room or apartment or whatever that that area is. Did you remember that Pegasus random Pegasus statue right on that table and a book that was like a foot tall? Like they really went out of their way to find the thickest book they could to put in the foreground of that scene where everything else was pretty normal in the background. But that's what yeah. I remember about that. Now that you mention, I guess I kind of remember that statue, but no, it's not something I really like consciously hit. So, but I, I was thinking like, yeah, uh, the, the the Bible reading just in 2023, there are people that are rubbed the wrong way by that. Again, for me, I, yeah, it's the point is he's obsolete. It doesn't really matter what book he's reading from in the end. But uh, now I was like, would it be like cool if he just started like reading the lyrics of Black Sabbath instead, you know, have a very... <laughs> have a very metal kind of death that'd be cool i i mean i i don't know i think that that was sort of the biggest insult right he said that was his most prized possession because that was the thing that was the most against the state so i think it all makes a lot of sense i mean this is a totalitarian dystopian place so like that just seems like the greatest symbol that could be used so i don't know i think it makes perfect sense i like, like a, i like the use of it it's like a triple metaphor forbidden fruit or something i guess that's kind of cool so but yeah yeah yeah. his room i mean there's only two sets in this I, I guess we could count the the staircase outside as a third set but that's not really a set they can just go use the staircase probably so mm -hmm. uh, i'm not sure what they would do in 1960 maybe there might be union things like no they got to build you a, a staircase or something but yeah but we got three sets at most basically so it, it is that's what I like about this episode. It feels pretty epic, but it's quite small scale. Mm -hmm. That's <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah. Like the mm -hmm. ideas are like pretty epic, I suppose. Um, I don't know. What what would you read to the uh, commandant in this case? If you're going to amuse him for 20 minutes before we all blow up. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I also thought that one of the reasons he did that was to, because, you know, the whole way that that scene ends is in the name of God. So, I mean, maybe that is just the most robust thing that you can can read to a, a soulless, nervous chancellor, you know, in, in moments before his presumed death. So I don't know. That's it's hard to it's hard to beat that one. I don't have so many paper books anymore. I'm looking at my bookshelf, mostly filled with uh, disc, which in its own way makes me my own. Oops, makes me my own obsolete man having just a ton of, you know, dvds and stuff right mm -hmm. i've been wondering about your collection if it had waned over the years or if you're like holding strong at your like tens of thousands <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's quite a, i mean i can't on a laptop i can't turn the camera but there i have insane amounts of, i you know uh tower records actually is still in japan we still have them but uh, about 2019 or so they finally became a ghost of their former self. I'm like, well, I, my, my room is now a tower record. So I guess we're good, <laughs> but yeah, that's but, something. Go ahead. I was just like, I, I found like in a car, like I've, I've gotten obsolete um, for many, for a long time I was using, you know, playing MP3s or whatever, but as people wanted to charge their phones, I kind of went back to just playing CDs most of the time. <laughs> my last rental car did not have a CD player. The one before it did. But then that was that was eliminated so there could be like a cleaner line on the dashboard. But back to DVDs, like that's something that I see in my job. Um, you know, there the transition, especially because of the pandemic, the transition from 
it being very common to send physical screeners to reviewers or to release things on DVD has just completely been shattered by the streaming market and all these different platforms. And that's actually something I was going to ask you was how did you watch this episode? Because I watched it on um, a advertising video on demand uh, channel, Pluto. That was where it was most available. So I, that's a whole other conversation. But, you know, just how we are consuming media and how much it's changed is a really interesting part of this, this uh, continuation this of this obsolete style. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Weirdly, though, sometimes, uh, not so much for the Twilight Zone, but um, I do podcasts on movies and stuff. And sometimes I'll have the the DVD like, you know, like a meter away here that I could grab. But it's just easier just to download it and watch it on my laptop and do my notes and all that sort of stuff. So um, mm -hmm. I, I am horribly lazy about that sometimes, but... <laughs> It's it's a it's the way of the world. Like the the DVD is dying, the Blu-ray is dying, just like every other media format before it. So it's it's hard as a media archivist. That's pretty hard to see, you know. And and there are also lots of complications to streaming and rights and you know availability and you know purchasing something that's an intangible thing and then they take it off your platform and then you you lose the possession that you had. It's uh, it's a big mess. It's it's an interesting. It's an interesting evolution, and it's it's going to get more and more complicated. Yeah, I mean, if you made this episode now, you'd have what, like John Cusack's character from High Fidelity or something as, <laughs> as the uh, as the obsolete man. <laughs> mm. Is that oh oh here we go. I, I I put what I was trying to look at my bookshelf. Like, what would I read uh, while we're waiting midnight? And I actually made a note. The book's not in here. It's at my parents' house in America, but uh, I, I would go with the 1992 rolling stone album guide as as the per thing you're reading the bad reviews for but for good bands maybe that's why i talked about black sabbath because i remember that that album guide rips black sabbath a new one so it would be fun to to read those reviews so you would like torment the chancellor as opposed to try to convert him in the last like few moments you would just you know needle him <laughs> Yeah, I'd be the I'd read the reviews for the Black Sabbath records, which were unjustly um, maligned in that book, uh, and, then, <laughs> and then I and then the review for Tacos putting on the Ritz album, which I think they gave a half star to, and that that one kind of deserves it. But yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That's still a pretty legendary song. <laughs> oh no, I had a, I got a weird obsession with that for no reason about three weeks ago. The uh, the video, which is highly bizarre so um and and apparently if you find it in its original version also highly offensive but they did re-edit it a bit um oh they had like people tap dancing in blackface originally or something oh my god no they, why? They, they, they changed it that's not in there i did not on the official taco website you will not see that version so no i would think not by now jeez excuse me official taco youtube channel if you are looking for it um, which I believe also <laughs> includes modern taco reaction videos. So <laughs> to, I don't remember what he's reacting to, but uh, it's it's something. Um, you said you had a ton of notes. So uh, I, I yeah, guess I'm, I'll throw the ball in your court. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking the next thing that was interesting um, because, you know, he was given the choice to be liquid. Well, he was not giving the choice. He was going to be liquidated, but the chancellor was like, hey, you can choose when and how. So he had 48 hours to do it. And the first three things that the chancellor mentions is you can do pills, you can do gas, or you can do electrocution. And then, you know, of course, 
Burgess Meredith gets this twinkle and he's like, oh, let me ask for some special conditions here. What if I meet my assassin? And how about if it's just a secret between us, like how it's going to go? And the chancellor's like, yeah, sure. Like no suspicion, it seems. You know, it seems a little strange. But... And so then, of course, the, what his method is, is he requests to be blown up. So um, by a very small bomb, by the way, like by the time that that actually goes off and the chancellor is safely in the in the in the staircase, that seems like that would not have killed a person. It just would have like horribly maimed them. Was that just my impression, or well, did that seem nope. like? If nobody comes in to give him medical attention, then it will still probably you know work out in the end. Um, You're right. I, I didn't think about that. I was thinking, is this like? Does he live in like a um? probably government but the, a public apartment because they just have to blow up one unit of an apartment then right which would be and he said difficult. that it would be difficult and also it seems like it's a part of a greater thing but he mentions how he's isolated and that's how that like ruse of getting the chancellor to visit him and locking him in the room works because he's like oh well you you know you can't cry for help because there's no one around because you've isolated me like you said you would so i don't know if that's like the condemned person no it can't be it's not the condemned person's place because it had all this stuff there so that's kind of hazy i'm unclear like how that could be his home but also he could be completely isolated or maybe they it's evacuated everyone else they said he was under review for a year, so it could just be that's kind of like a halfway house or a, uh, you know, home arrest prison sort of thing. Because, I mean, it's certainly nicer in a prison cell, but. That makes sense. And that would kind of explain why his, I just thought he was messy, but maybe it was because he had to condense all of his things into that one room. And that's how it was just sort of overflowing with the things he cared about, you know. The yeah, this, Pegasus statue. <laughs> that, that's, that's Burgess Meredith's man cave, you know. Right, exactly. Or the um, unsubtly named Wordsworth, if we're going with the uh, the character's name. <laughs> Super subtle, yeah. Um, oh, you know, I was just, you know, I was okay. So I'm looking at all my random notes and, you know, he the chancellor really relished when I was saying that he didn't seem very suspicious that that Meredith had a, a or Wordsworth had a, a different plan in mind. But really, he was just so like relishing his power to say yes. I can approve that request for you like that it seemed like he was caught up in his own ego and and that maybe was why he it didn't occur to him that there could be something tricky behind that and you know of course later um it's when meredith says you underestimated me and that's a good moment like i mean i guess we can assume and, and from the end where they all just start growling and stuff i mean we can assume that these people are basically stupid they don't read books they're probably speaking like a language that's like missing half of the words by this point, you know, so they, they don't have the means to think. Yeah, it, that growling kind of noise sad. was super eerie and they move like zombies. Like, I mean, that was very deliberate to have this animalistic thing. And you don't really know what happens to the chancellor at the end because they cut right over the rod, you know, in his cigarettes. But, but you know that right. it looked like he was they were going to consume him almost which is not <laughs> how it went for meredith so i don't know is it because he was one of their own or he was supposed to be fatter than that but like they literally dragged him down well maybe things are like worse in this fascist society three days later there's been some laws passed so the procedure is now different <laughs> And the whole thing about the, it being recorded, that was the other part of his request, was that um, a television camera be set up, which is was on the wall, and it was three different lenses. So I'm not quite sure how that worked. But 
And at first I thought that that was not real. I thought that that was part of the joke that that he pretended that it was being televised so that, you know, he, that the, the chancellor would truly be stuck. But it seems like it was because when the chancellor gets back, then everyone knows what's happened. So that really was a live hookup. It was a televised event. Like he said, like the chancellor mentioned the mass executions that had happened earlier. And he was bragging how they killed 1300 people in less than six hours. And what a great televised event that had been. So I think it's not just this, they're doing these things, but they're, you know, there's this, this, what was that sort of behavior that people had when they went to executions for fun or beheadings and guillotines and things like that. It's tapping into that sort of like vicious human nature of wanting to see the demise of these people deemed as less than. So that's an extra chilling element to it. Yeah. They, they didn't have Richard Bachman yet to, to come up with the running man idea that, that, that could work. You just, <laughs> put Burgess Meredith in one of those uh, uh, sparkly suits and throw him into the uh, the running man pit, see what happens. He would have looked great in glitter. I mean, you know. <laughs> Burgess Meredith in glitter. Yeah, I can go for that. Um. <laughs> also, I have a note about how when the countdown was happening, they're really building that suspense with those superimposed clocks that were like flying by in front as the chancellor got more and more nervous and you know that that was the only effect that was in the episode was that the the clocks and the clock faces that were like zooming in and out to heighten that suspense of the countdown that's the, the credit sequence for twilight zone too i don't remember if it's that for season two or not oh well um uh just if any yeah i guess knowing how the sausage is made usually when the credits are rolling i'm like bringing up my word processor to, and typing the title of the episode to start my notes so um, <laughs> yeah I, I i should maybe i should pay more attention to the title sequences and, and i'll say hey now that we're at the end of season two i'm just gonna say it i think i like the first season twilight zone theme better <laughs> cool. cool shots fired yeah yeah come on I'm, I'm shooting i'm taking a shot for bernard herman there i mean come on fair 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 <laughs> we should we should take a shot of the twilight zone for replacing a bernard herman theme but yeah i, I guess it's not quite as radio catchy for sure so <laughs> yeah that could that's probably it and how many more how many more seasons are there it was five total yeah so wow. we got three more including the bizarre season four of 50 minute episodes that are apparently mostly you know 20 minutes too long so <laughs> So do you also, you had the prologue. Did you also have the the epilogue? Or I wrote that down. Would you like me to read that? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so as the Chancellor is being, you know, presumably eaten, but at very least attacked and dragged down, he says, any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. Ah, oh, so much shorter. That's why you want the epilogue in the first place. Yeah, it is okay. shorter. And then after that, he says a case to be filed under M for mankind in the Twilight Zone. And then we got an Oasis cigarette commercial. I Were didn't see that coming. I guess so. I've never even heard of Oasis, but you know that's clever to end your season by giving a nod to your sponsor because it there, it wasn't too blatant. Doesn't well, I've heard I've heard a lot about Oasis cigarettes because I've now gotten through two seasons of. Uh... Of the Twilight Zone, so and then Gunsmoke, I got I got a bumper for Gunsmoke right after that. Yeah, that's cool. So Oasis was the sponsor for the whole time, or at least for these first two seasons. Um, oh, was Oasis in the first one? I, I think there's occasionally something else. 
So, although I, I, I have noted, you don't see him actually smoking it on camera much. He just holds it. It's his, it's he holds his it, and the smoke sort of wafts by. So, yeah, it's a subtle but ever-present component. <laughs> But yeah, that was the crutch, you know, because he was nervous on camera, at, at least at first. I, I guess he probably still was later on. He's like, I got my cigarette. I'm good. You know, <laughs> I didn't um, realize that. I didn't know that that I thought that was a tie into the sponsor. But you're saying it was actually like a, a, a mechanism that he used for performance. Yeah, yeah. Kind of just to chill out a little bit. I mean, you know, probably looks cool. Right. So, um, I mean, in the end, the, the man probably should have smoked all the cigarettes he did, but he was not doing it on camera. He was just holding it on camera most of the time. So, I mean, think about can Can you imagine Rod Serling actually taking a puff off of his cigarette? Like, you can't really visualize that much. <laughs> He's too busy talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> and looking sternly at you. I mean, there really is. There's a very, you know, serious, somber, you know, intriguing way that he introduces things and and swoops back in and you know you can tell that his writing he 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 enjoys his writing that maybe that doesn't sound right but he 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 does a great job of writing and he does a great job of speaking the words that he's written it's a powerful part of the whole series yeah i mean you know he, he wrote 97 of 156 episodes of this thing so uh, there, there's a few pot boilers you know there's a few where you definitely um see him just by the pool with a gin tonic like talking to a dictaphone you know and that's that being the episode Th this one has some thought in it I, I you know uh i i don't feel like this is a by the pool dictaphone episode if it was that's great too but you know if he was enjoying himself while writing a dystopia that that's cool too um i guess i'll start asking my questions for this episode uh, okay. the first the first of which uh who in this episode goes into the twilight zone I'm going to say Fritz Weaver does because the tables are turned on him more than anyone else. Like Burgess Meredith walks in knowing what his fate is, but Fritz Weaver absolutely does not expect anything that's happening to him. And, you know, is, is, has the most dramatic turnabout. Not, not the chancellor, but Fritz, Fritz Weaver himself. <laughs> I'm <at> the chancellor. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was my take too. Cause, um, Wordsworth is very much like on top of the situation. He he's already accepted his fate like before the episode starts. So if anything, he is he's from the Twilight Zone. He's the instigator, you know. Um, so yeah, you yeah. agreed that Burgess Meredith had sort of knew what was going on the whole time. Well, he he made the situation happen, didn't he? This is his fiendish plan, if you want to call it. I mean. I guess in terms of the society, it's a fiendish plan for us. It's a, it's a great plan. You know, um, our main concern was simply that um, some people don't like that. He, the religious angle, but again, I'll give him that because why not at this point? That's fine. Uh, it's not like he's going fire and brimstone. He's just reading stuff. So he was very defiant the whole time. I mean, you know, when there are a lot of times when he was being yelled at by the chancellor and he was just, you know, he wasn't really looking at him. He was just sort of looking down and listening and absorbing sort of the hatred that was being thrown at him. And so, you know, I thought he did his whole character from start to finish maintain that dignity. He maintained the pride in his profession. He maintained the fact that he was right and that, you know, he was seeing the demise of the state. And, you know, seeing how these people behaved, but he seemed true to himself and confident that that he was on the right side of history. I mean, it's 
it's an anthology show, but it just gives Burgess Meredith's character such a weird arc that he's he's kind of pitiful, as in we're going to pity him in Time Enough Last. He's an imbecile in Mr. Dingle. He's a dingle. They call him that. And and here, but he's still being pressed upon, you know, he's still being like oppressed as he is uh, to a certain degree in other ones. But here he comes out as, you know, relatively noble while still stammering like Burgess Meredith most of the time. So mm-hmm. stammering not as a vocal tick, but as just the, um, well, his style of speaking. So, mm-hmm. um, but let, let's go ahead and keep the Chancellor and Wordsworth in mind for the second question. Oh, oh, real! Uh, all those people growling at the end—they're—they're they're in the twilight zone. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> they're not I guess behaving like normal people anymore. But they're behaving according to what the state has created. So in that world, that is sort of normal. But I see what you're saying. But I mean, this world is a twilight zone. I guess we get into the dystopias here and there. So once um, you walk into the doors, you're already there. I guess that is exactly what the prologue says. Right. So we're going to focus this on Wordsworth and the Chancellor. Um, Chancellor first, because the question works better with him. Uh, did he deserve his trip into the Twilight Zone? Um, it's hard to say no. I mean, it I is think... hard to say no in this one. Yeah, I ask I'm this every say... episode. Sometimes it's a snap answer. You know, it's like, <laughs> yes, he does. Well, maybe did he deserve to blow up with uh, Wordsworth? <laughs> That was that was an interesting turn about like his last the the Meredith's last Wordsworth's last act was to free him because he summoned the name of God. That was interesting. And he didn't have a whole lot of extra time, by the way. He he got out there and that was the dramatic moment of it exploding as he was getting down the stairs. So so and you know, it seemed like that perhaps had made an impact on him, but then we don't really know what he was going to do next. We don't know if that changed how he was going to approach things when he gets back to his, you know, that first room gets back to back to business as usual. And by that point, though, everyone's already turned on him. So it's, it, you know, it could have been that there was redemption there, but it was too late in the eyes of the state for any alternative. Actually, you know, maybe it's not so flippant that I was like, oh, they just made new laws and that's why it works at the end. Cause um, Wordsworth just, um, found some serious loopholes so maybe now they just straight up eat you and you don't get 48 hours in a choose when your 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 method of demise now you're just eaten by ravenous zombies yeah Yeah, and they all seem to know what to do they all like group think their way through that you know they slid them down the table like that whole long table was there primarily for that slide at the end right <laughs> it put distance between Meredith when he was being sentenced but to use that again to to have him you know rush up and then be drawn back that was very dramatic I mean it's by any logical stretch of the mind a stupid ending but it just works so well to play so well but when you talk about it yeah it sounds stupid they start you know these people and brown shirts i assume they're brown shirts but uh start growling and seem to eat a dude it's a weird it's ending. scary though it sounds silly but it's much more sinister when you see it unfold right uh so i don't think wordsworth went into the twilight zone if anything he's manipulating the twilight zone but does he deserve his fate he is except so here it's a more interesting question he seems accepting of his fate so does he deserve his fate no, I don't think so. I think that he handles it as well as he possibly could. But, you know, I think the point is that the audience is on the side of 
being very much against the fact that he deserves it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the crux of the episode in the end, that, uh, you know, it's a horrible fate and he does the best with it and it doesn't even kill another dude in the end to do it. So, well, I guess, well, again, um, if the guy didn't flip out, I guess maybe he wouldn't have uh, been uh, not sentenced himself, right? If he mm -hmm. if Yeah, I guess that's, that's a good point, too. I mean, just like we don't know what the Chancellor would do after that incident sort of seemed to change his demeanor. We don't know if he hadn't evoked the name of God, if if Meredith would have just, you know, taken him along with them. Because it was moments. It was moments away from that explosion. And, you know, he got out just in time. But if he hadn't said that, would he have just sat there? And then and his last act would be killing someone else and taking someone else down with him, which is a much different tone. Yeah, that that would we'd be having a very different conversation if he did not let him out at the very last second, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> then we would probably say maybe he did deserve it because he, you know, took that that his last act was vengeful. So right, so here is more just it was still kind of vengeful. I mean, he probably knew that the guy was gonna get um, maybe literally eaten alive. So <laughs> I think that's where he took out his anger. He took out his anger at the chancellor more than any. Well, he was the symbol of the state, so. It was his last attempt at trying to show the chancellor like that he was following the wrong path. Right. Now, my last question uh, for these episodes is to put this on the tripometer, uh, zero being not trippy at all, five being very trippy, except decimal, decimals. Sometimes people just give me weird sounds. So, Do you have an example of a zero and a five, or this is all relative? Do you know the episode The Silence, which aired uh, a few weeks before this one, where the guy has to take a bet to stay silent for a year? Mm -mm. Who's okay. in it? Um, oh, geez. Um, uh, Dr. Smith from Lost in Space has a, a small role in it. That's what I'm remembering at the moment. Anyway, okay. um, we simultaneously gave that a zero or a five on the tripometer. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm going to say that this is a... Hmm. I think it's low. I'm trying. I'm trying to assign a number to it, but I think it's low because there aren't really a lot of there aren't any supernatural elements to it. So to me, trippiness and supernatural go hand in hand. And this is, you know, futuristic and dystopian, but there's nothing, you know, there's nothing super trippy. So I'm gonna say 0.26. That's my that's my grade. Okay, sure. Why not? Um... Yeah, I, I wonder if the set should count for points because it's just such a stark, trippy set. Anyway, though, I'm going to take a page from Luke this week and give give this one a grrrr. I, I feel like that is the correct score for this particular episode. I agree. Well done. Okay, uh, we'll wrap a bow on this one, I guess, then, unless you, you had a major point you wanted to throw out there. No, I think we threw it all up. We can descend into growls ourselves if you'd like, and that could be our ending. That's that's it wouldn't be the first time that's happened <laughs> in all these episodes. Um I, I guess I'll ask if you have anything to quote unquote plug. <laughs> mm. Yeah, the next episode too, which we'll be covering next. Oh, okay. Uh, then I'll have to rephrase the question. Okay. Anyway, uh, as for this, it is Time Enough Podcast on Twitter and Facebook. You can find us and other podcast on Patreon under Podcastio Podcastius, where we talk about sci-fi films at Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. 
Disney films and A Caught Disney, The Prisoner and Imprisoned in Prison. And you can get some video game stuff like Luke Loves Pokemon, The the Monster Mash, Monster Mash, which talks about Monster Hunter, and the game game show, which involves uh, four British guys hurling insults at each other. Not necessarily screaming, but but hurling, hurling the insults. Okay. I guess I will uh, declare this podcast obsolete. Wake up in a dream, ringing the gong, it messes me. Grow younger while get old. A true believer would told just what's inside my head. Just what's inside my head. Float in the sea forever. Distill what you find there. Everything is really real if you remember. It's just our chips of obsidian, eyes of fire, eyes forever, refusing to buy what's sold. All the glitters is not gold. Find the place that we've been led. Find the place that we've been led. Float in the sea of forever. Distill what you find there. Everything is really real. If you remember, it's just out. Catch places of glory. All that's broken are the trees. Returning back to the boat. Don't need to catch what I hold. Pages of history shed. All the pages of history shed. Float in the sea forever Distill what you find there Everything is really real If you remember that it's just air Awake up in a dream 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 Distill what you find there Everything is really real If you remember, it's just sad